welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Rodina Asban, here with my friend Chabruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachid Yavamot, daf Pezayin, page 87. Well, once again, we're going to start a little bit on the daf before um, with a new Mishnah. Um, and the first part of this Mishnah, the Tan is going to talk about the case of the daughter of Yisrael, who has a series of marriages and then a series of children. And at each point, uh, her status with eating truma or maser uh, is redefined, basically. By Yisrael, So a daughter of Yisrael who marries a Kohen. Tochel truma, She can eat truma. Mate, the Kohen dies. She has a son from him. Tochel truma, She continues to eat truma because the son who is a Kohen allows her to eat truma. But then Tochel maser, She can eat maser, right? But she's not going to be allowed to eat truma anymore. Mate galahi menubain. If the levi dies and she has a son from him, tochel maser. She continues to be able to eat maser on account of her son, who's a levi, but she cannot eat truma. Nisaitli Yisrael. Um, let's say she marries a Yisrael. Lo tochel lo truma, maser. She may not either eat truma or maser. So in other words, what we're seeing is, is that the marriage status sort of trumps the status with the children. And let's say Yisrael dies and she has a son from him. Nothing changes. She's not going to let you truma. She still won't be allowed to eat maser. Mishnah goes on to say, Let's say her Yisrael's son dies. She reverts back, right? She's widowed. She reverts back from being the mother of a lady. So now she's allowed to eat maser. Let's say this lady son dies. Remember, she reverts back to being the mother of a Kohen. So now she can eat Truma because of that son who's a Kohen. But if she, uh, if her son who's a Kohen dies, she would not be allowed to eat Maser or Truma. Now, again, I don't think this is an actual practical case. This is really, this is a puzzle. This is this is the the the, the Mishnah sort of playing around to show how fluid all of this can be. Now, in the second half of this mission, the time is going to talk the case of the daughter of a Kohen, who, again, what happens to her ability to eat truma also through marriage and through children. But Kohen Shinisei Israel, the daughter of a Kohen who marries Yisrael, Lotel Chalva Truma, she loses her right to eat truma, mate galahem enubain. And if the Israel dies and she has a son from her, Lotel Chalva Truma, she still can't eat truma because that son is a Yisrael and doesn't entitle her to eat truma. Let's say she marries a levi. She gets to eat maser. If the levi dies and she has a son for him, she continues to eat maser. Um, then uh, let's say she marries a kohen. Now she can eat truma. Let's say that kohen dies, but she has a son with that kohen. She can continue to eat truma because her son now gets her that right. Let's say the son from the coin dies. She no longer can eat truma. Then the lady's son dies. She no longer can eat maser. But she could have eaten maser before. Excuse me, I didn't say this. When the coin's son dies. If her son from Yisrael dies, she returns to her father's house. In other words, she turns to the original house and then she's actually allowed to eat uh, truma again. The and this woman it says, Avia Milacham Avia Tochel. 
So here they quote a, um, this is a pasuk from uh, Baikra chapter 22, verse 13, right? That basically says she goes back to her father's house of reason. She can eat the bread like her father. So very, very interesting Mishnah that I think sort of shows how these cases could, again, I don't think this actually happened to a particular person, but it's showing sort of how fluid um, all of this could be. So there actually is a lot of, uh, a, a lot of Gemara on this. I'll just read the beginning part here. If her son from a levi's died, she can go back to eating truma. The Gemara wants to know, So this law that she can once again eat truma because of her son from a coin, where do we get it from? And so they're going to, you know, so the plus of the users, Rabbi says in the name of Rab, Batu Bat, right? So we have a coin's daughter in one pasuk and a coin's daughter. And it's that that teaches us that she regains her right to eat truma. So these are psukim from Vayikra uh, Perkhavet. And then the Gemara says, Who is this like? It's according to Rabbi Akiva, to Drashi Vavay, where we've seen this multiple times in Yuvamos, he would give Drashot to the extra Vav. The Gemara goes on to say, You may even say that this goes with the opinion of the rabbis, even the entire world's word of daughter is superfluous, and therefore, <coughs> even the Chachamim could explain it uh, that way. So the Gemara is going to go through a few more psukim and sort of deep dive into how do they know some of these things and some of the, the you know the the sources in the Torah itself for how they actually uh, derive uh, these uh, um, these halachot. Uh, I'm not going to read all of. Um, but again, I like Mishnah because it's, excuse me, is not a practical Mishnah. It's really, to me, this is a sort of going through all of the different permutations and showing how much flux there actually can be. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting. I think that, um, fleshing out all the possible cases is, I guess the business of the Gemara and these kinds, that's, it doesn't mean it couldn't happen, right? It it just, the question is whether it ever did. We still, they still had to know what the halacha was going to be. And as you said, this one was a puzzle. Um, I want to commend you here on the this last mission of Parak Chi, the ninth Parak. We're moving on to Parak Yud. And we have here a long mission that introduces the 10th the Parak. I want to just give one sentence or so of Akhtamah's introduction, which is that up until this point, really, not not throughout the entire Gemara, but certainly the, the main thrust of these chapters throughout Yavama have been about um, about the case where, the meaning the Yibum cases have been where a woman's husband died and his brother, or lack thereof, or you know, younger brother or twin brother. I mean, there's so many different cases of what could be, who could be a Yavam and whether a Yavam could be found and whether Khalid had to be done. But the point is that all of those cases we're talking about um, where the dead, where the brother had died, where the husband had died. Our mission here opens up with, I think, what is a much more difficult situation, namely that of limbo and what happens in the wake of limbo. And of course, the ramifications for practice were huge. So you have a woman whose husband went overseas, right? He went traveling, whether this is for business or for, I don't know, army or for marauding, who knows, right? He's gone traveling 
far away. Um, witnesses come and they tell her that your husband has died. And on the basis of that, of that, the witness's testimony, she gets married to somebody else. And now, let's, uh, we can make lots of movies or soap operas out of this, right? And then her husband comes back. She has to separate from the new husband, and she cannot go back to the original husband. And she needs a bill of divorcement from both of them, from each of them. Um, why this is, you know, what exactly is going on here is, of course, the subject of ongoing in the Mishnah and then, of course, in the Gemara throughout. She does not get to claim the payment of her ketuba, and she doesn't get any of the the payrot, the terms of marriage sustenance, let's say, that are part of the marriage. Velo payrot, velo mezonot, likewise. Velo blaot, not for clothing. Velo alze, velo alze. So she can't get food or clothing that she, including the things that she brought brought into the marriage. Um, she um, can't make claims to anything, any such property, neither from the original husband nor from the new husband. And if she, in fact, had taken either any of these kinds of items from either man, then she has to give it back to him. Vavlad, and here's where it gets worse, right? Vavlad mamzer This is going to be tricky, right? But we understand why the Vlad, why any offspring from the second husband would be considered a mamzer. She's still married to the first husband. She just doesn't know that he's alive, right? So it's unfortunate, but but the marriage is still in existence. Why the child would be a mamzer from the second husband is an interesting question, right? Because, as follows, um, if she if she had gone, the the question isn't if she had a child from the first husband before he went to Medinatayam, right? But she can't be with him, right? She can't sleep with him once he comes back because again she's married the second husband. So if she um, had gone back to the first husband, meaning not that she's supposed to, but if she had done so, and then, in fact, a child is born later from that, then that child would be considered a mamzer because of her interlude with the second husband in the while the first one was gone. And neither of these people, if they were kohanim, neither of them, them would um, um, uh, render themselves impure for the sake of burial, meaning we're talking about kohanim who don't get, who don't go to a cemetery except for the seven relatives, one of whom is your spouse, but they would not do so, meaning she is negated as being there's either of their spouses. And the men, meaning not the first husband nor the second husband, they're not entitled to, you know, her, those things she produces and so on, her, her earnings or so on. Um, the things that would usually come through the fact that they're married they are no longer entitled to those things either. And they also cannot um, nullify her vows, meaning these are all specifications that basically say they're not married. They're not married, they're not married, they're not married, and we're going to check each one of the possible ways that a marriage bond would yield, you know, commitment to each other in terms of monetary um, benefit or or other. Okay. Now, if she were... Uh, by Yisrael, meaning she's not a Bat Kohen, she's not a Bat Levi. If she's a Bat Yisrael, she cannot marry into the Kahuna. And if she's a Bat Levi, she can't have Maaser. 
Uvad Kohen, if she's a Bad Kohen, Min Hatruma, she can't have Truma. Ve'en Yorshin Chalzev, Yorshin Chalzev, Yorshin Ektubata. And if she has ch- children from, let's say, from both husbands, right? Um, they cannot inherit from the ketuba, right? It's not just that she doesn't get the benefit of the ketuba. It's not going to be given the value. The, the sums there are not going to be passed on to her children either. And if either of these husbands were to die childless, um, I guess prior... I don't know exactly how that's going to pan out. We're going to have to see that in the Gemara um, because I can already imagine right, all the different convolutions that that could take. But the bottom line is Chalitza and Aibum. Again, they can't, they, she can't be married with either one of them. She's not going to be able to be married to the brothers, even though the brothers might actually technically be fine, but not in this case. So Rabbi disagrees and he says that she should, she does get the ketubah of the first husband. And Rabbi says the first husband does get her her financial um, earnings or benefits or whatever um, and can also be, can also nullify her vows. All of these things because they had never, they had never stopped being married, right? So it's only the second marriage that's the problem. The first marriage, all those terms should still be in effect, according to Rebbe Lezer. Rebbe Shimon Omer, Biata o chalitata, me'achiv shal rishon poteret tsarata, ve'en havlad mimenu mamzer. And Rebbe Shimon goes even further, and he says that if, in fact, she were to have had sexual relations with the brother, meaning with the first husband's brother, or chalitza from the brother, right, then that would poter a co-wife, that would exempt a co-wife, um, meaning it's a regular yibum or chalitza, and then she certainly doesn't need chalitza from the second one, according to Rabbi Shimon, because the second one was like, it was never anything, basically, according to this approach. And if she would then go back to the first husband, likewise, the child that she would have, a new child that she would have with him is not going to be considered a mamzer. That's a much more generous handling of the situation by Rabbi Shimon of this woman. And if she had gotten married, meaning when she get when the husband doesn't come back from Medina Tayam and there's testimony that he is dead, you know, she can theoretically she could just act on the testimony, or she can take those witnesses into the court to the rabbis to find out, you know, what is her situation? Can she get married again or not? So if she does that, meaning if she had married with the permission of the court, then that's different than if she had gotten married just on her own understanding of the testimony. Um, if she had married with the person, um, no, I'm sorry, everything that we said before is all about if she had married with the permission. But if she'd done so without the permission, right, then her husband comes back, then she can go back to her first husband, meaning the involvement of the Beiti makes the whole situation of the husband's initial death to be more official, as opposed to, I suppose we would say that, you know, it's promiscuity on her part um, to be with a second man, but it's not as, it doesn't have that official uh, stamp, so to speak, from the court. Um, but if she got married to the second guy, uh, you know, in accord with the Beitin, korban. Then she has to leave both, meaning she can't go back to the first one, she can't stay married to the second one, but she does not have to bring a korban for you know, for the fact that she, for the fact that she technically committed adultery because she really didn't mean to. She had authorization, right? She was given 
official sanction to go ahead and get married. So that's considered, let's call it, you know, duress, right? Like she's not guilty in the way that would require her to bring a korban. But if she did not marry with a, with a court, then she needs to leave the second husband and she is chayev, she must bring a korban. Um, because again, she was sleeping with somebody who was technically forbidden to her. So what happened? So the the Mishnah here says, like, look how great the power of the court is to exempt her from bringing a korban. But on the other hand, if the court had instructed her to get married, and the meaning, let's say the testimony was inaccurate, which by definition, if the husband, they testify that he's dead, and then he comes back from the dead, so to speak, then that testimony was wrong. Um, and then she's gone out and basically, um, you know, as I said, been promiscuous or whatever. It's certainly not within the confines of, matri- of of the wedding of the first marriage, right? So even if she technically got married, but the second marriage doesn't count, then that's the that's the issue here. And that's why she would need to bring a carbon under those circumstances because the point is that they, and this of course is maybe not fair to her, the mission says they permitted her to get married. They didn't permit permit her to sleep around. Now, again, not fair to her because she didn't. It's not like she went out and became promiscuous. She simply was married to the to somebody who she was told she could marry because the first husband had presumed was presumed dead or or more than presumed dead. He had there was testimony that he was dead. So the fact that at this point she's kind of like stuck bringing a carbon because oh my goodness she. You know, been promiscuous is a little bit unfair to her, I would say. Um, okay, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, this is going to get this whole parak is going to get into this whole issue of like, how do we help women in these particular situations? Um, you know, who can we believe as a witness testimony? Are we allowed to accept one witness? I think when we read the Mishnah, it's disturbing, you know, this idea that sort of, you know, woman was somehow misinformed, makes a decision based on that and not. And I think the worst part is, is that that child is considered to be a mom's heir. Look, I think this is where people find difficulty in some of these halachot. Like it it feels very um, that they somehow couldn't figure this out in a different way. I don't have any sense from reading this Mishnah, like how common were these scenarios to happen, you know? What, what, you know, how often would it be that somebody was told their first spouse died and then somebody would actually show up? I think all heard stories like this, uh, particularly after World War II, but I, I just don't have a sense, like, how often did this really happen? Is this a fantasy Mishnah or is this a real Mishnah? Meaning, like, this actually um, happened. I think my sense is, and maybe this is just from, you know, other aspects of history. I don't mean specifically from this time period, but I think the idea that people would come back from a shipwreck, let's say, you know, that they they were presumed dead and people said, like, I saw that ship go down and they don't realize that there was actually a survivor, right? I think that it's not, I, I think that actually in previous, before all the rapid fire telecommunications and, and things like that, I think it was more common or more more likely that this could happen because information was not as discernible. Like you just didn't know, you know, if what you saw was what you saw, um, I, I think, right? As opposed to nowadays when I feel like when they 
you know, God forbid there's a plane crash. And when they say there's no survivors, they mean there's no survivors. It doesn't mean that somebody like, you know, hid in a bush and wasn't counted properly. You know, like it just nowadays it sounds like totally far fetched. But I, I think that back in the day, it was probably much less so far fetched. Um, I think that this these kinds of details, the the question of what if somebody would come back afterwards um, leaves. I mean, this is the fundamental case of the Aguna, right? Like if they don't know if she's dead, if they don't know if the first husband is dead, then she's stuck. So there's also a value to hearing testimony that the husband is dead if, in fact, there's a presumption of that. Um, I, I, you know, it's, I feel like in some ways, life, life-wise, they're among the most complicated halakhot. Well, that's our tap discussion for the day. Marinka's review is on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend e. Michelle Barber for hosting us website. Let us know what you thought about this app on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.